Well, we're beginning this new year with the story of Jesus in the book of Luke. We, over the Advent and into Christmas season, we began looking at the birth of Jesus as Luke told it, and we're going to continue right on. I believe we looked at his dedication last week, and um, or his, was it his dedication or his time in the temple as a young boy? Yeah. And, and now we pick up in Luke 3 this morning. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open to Luke 3. You might be able to find a Bible in one of the rows in front of you if you don't have one. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 20, which Carl read for us earlier. When a great world ruler comes to visit your city, how do you prepare for their arrival? When Queen Elizabeth visited the U.S. some years back, reporters had fun describing all the logistics involved in her royal visit. Her Majesty was accompanied by 4,000 pounds of luggage. It included two outfits for every occasion, a morning suit should there be an unexpected funeral along the way, 40 pints of plasma, her, uh, or rather, um, some uh, toilet seat covers made of white kid leather, and uh, her own personal hairdresser, two valets, and other attendants. It's estimated that a short visit by the queen to another country costs about $20 million. <laughs> and what about for the city or the country who's receiving the royal one? It's common when cities host great world leaders, when possible, to plan for weeks or months in advance to uh, widen or repave roads along the route that this leader will travel, to, uh, in some cases, tear down or replace disheveled buildings if the route goes through certain parts of town, to clean up the trash, to move homeless people to other locations, and, of course, to carefully, carefully and meticulously plan for the security of the area along the route. Preparing for the arrival of a great one is a very big and very important job. And in our story this morning, that job falls to John the Baptist. That's what the Isaiah quotation is about in verses 4 to 6 of our text this morning. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This verse may not mean much to us, but it had incredible meaning for the people back then. In fact, this verse was like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It introduced or introduces the second half of the book of the prophet Isaiah, a section of scripture known as Isaiah's New Exodus. Because this second half of Isaiah includes a great string of prophecies which foretold the time when God would once again come down to rescue his people, not this time from Egypt, like he did at the first exodus, but this time from captivity among empires like Rome, uh, under whose rule uh, the, the people were suffering under the time of John the Baptist. And, and this was the salvation, this was the deliverance that God's people were looking forward to as they read the book of Isaiah. And in the verses of Isaiah that Luke quotes here, God foretells how one day in the wilderness, God would raise up a prophet to prepare the way for the Lord's salvation. 
And how would his way be prepared? Well, the same way that great rulers' comings are always prepared, prepared for, among other things, by improving the roads along the route that they'll take. Today, our roads are often already in excellent shape. We've already blasted hillsides to cut highways through. We've built up the grade in low spots. We've uh, built bridges across valleys, tunneled through mountains. And so we uh, might just have to repave our roads in advance of the coming of a, a, a great one if there were a lot of potholes. But back then, roads were by and large narrow. They were made of dirt. They were windy. They were often washed out by storms. And so they had much more road work to do to prepare the way for a king who was coming. And that's John the Baptist's job. Now, as we'll see, this roadway improvement, in John's case, isn't literal. It's, it's an image. John um, will have this metaphorical task of preparing the roads. But as we'll quickly realize, John's task won't be easy regardless. John will have at least two significant challenges to overcome as he prepares the way. The first one, as Luke makes clear in verses 1 to 3, is that there are already a full cohort of mighty rulers in all the important places of power. Tiberius Caesar is emperor of the Western world, the most powerful man in the world in his day. And upholding and enforcing his rule in the region of Palestine, where God's people live, are four other rulers who answer to Caesar. Pontius Pilate rules Judea and uh, Jerusalem. Herod rules Galilee to the north. Philip rules the east side of the Jordan River. And Lysanias rules Abilene further north. And to top it off, Annas and Caiaphas wield immense religious and also political power as high priests at that time. Now, all those names of those rulers may not mean much to us, but to the people at that time, the, these rulers represented oppression, oppression, oppression. They were the nasty faces of the long, strong arm of Rome's tyrannical hold on the Jewish people. And that's the backdrop that Luke chooses to set the scene for John the Baptist's work. John the Baptist is supposed to prepare the way for the arrival of a new king, and yet the region is already bristling with powerful rulers. There certainly isn't room for one more. This is very much like the situation that Moses faced during the first exodus, right? The mighty Pharaoh was already on the throne of Egypt, and so who was Moses to come in and ask Pharaoh to let his people go? Well, God came through that first time, and so we wait in eager expectation to see what God's going to do this time. But John faces a second big challenge in preparing the way for this new king. And this one comes as more of a surprise to us. If you remember when God first appeared to Moses at the burning bush to announce the first exodus, what did God tell Moses to tell the people? Exodus 3, tell them the Lord the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob says, I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. Notice why God came in, in the first exodus to rescue his people. Because they were his people. They were children of their father Abraham. Abraham. 
And God had made promises to Abraham to, to make his people into a mighty nation and to give them a promised land to live in. And so because the Israelites were Abraham's children, they were God's people. And so God remembered his promises to them, and God was concerned for their suffering. But now here we go with the second exodus, and John is going to prepare the way for the great king who will lead this exodus. But here's the surprising challenge that John the Baptist faces. The word of God comes to him in the wilderness, verse 2, and evidently God made it clear to him that being Abraham's children is not good enough this time to get in on this second exodus. Verse 8, John warns the crowds, Do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. God isn't going to save his people this time just because they're Abraham's children. That's the bad news. The good news is that God is willing to save them. But they will have to prepare themselves for his arrival first. And to help them get prepared, God has given them John the Baptist. Now, how are they to prepare for this arrival? Well, not by literally building bigger and wider roads, but rather by changing their lives and their behavior and their way of thinking. By becoming people who look a lot more like their father Abraham, because right now they don't. Look how John describes them. Verse 7, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? What does it mean to be compared to a, a viper, a snake? Well, snakes were known as, as cunning and crafty and deadly to life. And uh, that's why Satan himself is symbolized as a, as a serpent. And you know there was a viper in that area, which it was believed at that time would be pregnant, and its young would actually eat their way out of their mother's womb. I don't know if that really happened, but that was the conception of the time. How's that for a symbol of ruthlessness? Perhaps that's what John means by brood of vipers. You batch of baby vipers. These people are a far cry from acting like Abraham's children. They're looking for salvation. They're being oppressed by the Romans, by this great hierarchy of oppressive rulers that Luke describes. And John comes to them offering the good news of, of a new exodus. And then as soon as the people come out and they get interested in what John has to say, the Baptist turns on them and says, but you're a bunch of snake children. You're not worthy of this salvation. In fact, you deserve the coming wrath. Because along with salvation, wrath was also coming. Think about it. Whenever a people are in bondage and they're held there by powerful forces, salvation always involves conflict and wrath. That's what we see in the first exodus, right? Ten plagues of wrath fell on the Egyptian pharaoh. God made a distinction between the Egyptians and his people, the Israelites. His own people, God spared and God rescued, but his wrath fell on the Egyptians. And that's going to happen again in the second exodus, only this time, here's the problem, here's John's challenge. God's own people, Abraham's own children, are a bunch of snakes who deserve God's wrath too. And God isn't about to let them off the hook just because of their religious credentials. 
You know, as religious people, it's easy to fall into a sense of entitlement. You know, we're, we're all good Christian people. We've been going to church for years. We're familiar. We're knowledgeable about the things of God. And so we somehow can come to think that we deserve certain things from God. Like, like God must grade on the curve and we're at the top of the class. But you won't find that perspective in God's word. No, it's just the opposite. God expects more of his own people, not less. God grades us on a higher standard. As Jesus said, to those who have been given much, much is expected. The pagan, the godless, those who, who don't know about the things of God, they, they don't know any better. But God's people, we know better. We know what God's standards are. And so God expects us to live like the children of Abraham. And if we don't, John the Baptist warns us now, watch out. God's salvation is coming. God is separating those God is going to save from those God is going to destroy. So make sure you don't fall under his wrath. Then John gives two images of this wrath that is coming. The first in verse 9 is that of God as an axe man who is poised to cut down a fruit tree because this tree won't produce any fruit. And so he's going to burn it in the fire. And then second in verse 18 is of God as a farmer who's winnowing his grain. When, when grain is harvested, if you're not familiar with, with uh, what happens out on the great prairies, um, well, now they use machines, but back then, uh, the, the uh, kernels of grain would be all mixed in with um, dried bits of, of stem and, and husk, which is called the chaff. And um, to separate out the good grain, which was heavier, the farmer would toss it all into the air, and the wind would blow the, the, the lighter chaff out beyond where the grain fell down. And so the farmer could then gather up the good, clean grain and, and, and store it away, and the chaff he'd then sweep up and, and burn. And uh, notice the similarity in both of these images here that John gives. In both cases, what the farmer is looking for is good fruit. That's what fruit trees, that's what stalks of grain are meant to produce. And a fruitless fruit tree is worthless to the farmer. Generally, fruit wood isn't even good for burning. Fruit trees are meant to produce fruit. And, and after the grain has been harvested, the husks and the bits of dried stem are worthless too. And so God separates out what is worthless and burns it up while storing up the good fruit. That, John the Baptist says, is what the one who is coming, who John is preparing the way for, is going to do to his people if they are not bearing fruit. Now here's the question. Was that just true for people back then? Were they just a particularly bad bunch of apples? Or... Is that just as true of you and me today? Well, before John's done with us this morning, I think we're going to find out. Because look what John says the people should do to get ready for the coming of the king. Look how John tells them to build up the valleys and to cut through the hillsides and to smooth out the rough places. John tells the people that they should repent. Now, what does repent mean? Well, repent has, has two related meanings depending on whether you go back to the original Greek in the New Testament or the Hebrew in the Old Testament. 
Repent means to change your mind, to, to look at things in a new way. And repent means to turn around and to face a different direction. And these are related. Uh, former Anglican missionary to India, John, uh, Leslie Newbegin, explains. He says, I remember once visiting a village in the, the Madras diocese in India. And, and you could reach this village either from the south side of the village or from the north side of the village. And the congregation had decided that I would come by the southern route, and they had prepared a welcome that only an Indian village can prepare. There was music and fireworks and garlands and fruit and ceremonial Indian martial arts performances, everything you could imagine. Unfortunately, I entered the village from the north end and found only a few goats and chickens. Crisis. I had to disappear while word was sent to the assembled congregation, and the entire village did a sort of U-turn so as to face the other way, and then I duly reappeared. This is what repent means, he says. Today's English translation, which a paraphrase, gives a, a misleading impression by paraphrasing it, turn away from your sins. That might make it look like a traditional call to moral reformation, but it's far more than that. The point of repentance is that in Jesus, the kingdom of God, the reign of God has drawn near. But you can't see it because you're looking the wrong way. You're expecting the wrong thing. What you think is God isn't God at all. You have to be, as Paul says, transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to go through a mental revolution. Otherwise, the reign of God will be totally hidden from you. That's John's job, to help us repent. So basically, to repent means to turn around and to take a new outlook on life, to see the world with new eyes, to see things in a different way, and then to live out of that new outlook, that new understanding. Because the new exodus that John is preparing the people for isn't like the exodus that they're expecting. Isn't that just God's way? <laughs> so let's consider two questions about this repentance that John is calling the people to. First, what does this repentance do for us? And then second, what does this repentance look like practically? So first, what does this repentance do for us? Well, this repentance, what it does is it allows us to receive, John says, God's forgiveness for our sins. It's not that repentance earns us forgiveness. If we had to earn it, it wouldn't be repentance. Or it wouldn't be forgiveness. Sorry. It's rather that, that to receive God's forgiveness, we have to first see things from God's perspective. And the first thing we have to see is that we have sins that need forgiving that we're not just Abraham's chosen children, and so we have a free pass to salvation, no matter how we're living. No, we, we have to see that we're a brood of snakes in too many ways who are not fit to receive God's salvation. That we're not just God's privileged people who deserve to be rescued from God's enemies. No, that we are among God's enemies and that we are living in too many ways hostile to God and contrary to God's way. 
But here's the good news. God cares about us enough to warn us of our plight and to invite us to come back into God's good graces. God graciously, freely, and lovingly offers to forgive all of our sins. Isn't that good news? But what God won't do is forgive people who won't admit that they've sinned and who don't want to change their sinful ways because those people aren't really looking for forgiveness. All right, let's move on to the second question then. What does this repentance, this new outlook on life, look like practically? And here the John, John, John the Baptist, what he tells us is that it begins with our job and with our wallet. Look at verses 10 to 14. The people evidently take John's warnings to heart, and so they ask John what they should do. And there's a lot that John could say, and I'm sure there's a lot that John did go on to say. But look what John zeroes in on here that, that Luke picks up in what Luke gives us here about John the Baptist. Our work and our finances. I guess it's that if you aren't prepared to have a paradigm shift about your career and about your family budget, then according to the Baptist, you aren't really ready to receive the king whose way John is preparing. And John be begins with people like many of us, the middle class. Back then, these people uh, were people who made not just enough money to barely survive, but a little extra, enough for a second shirt, enough for more food than their family needed for the day. And, and to understand what John is, is going after here when he talks about the one who has two shirts, the one who has extra food, you have to understand what real poverty is. And that most people in the world at that time and, and still today lived in that kind of poverty. Such people most often only had one shirt, the one on their back. And they barely had enough food to put food on, on their, their plates for them and their children for that day. I looked up some World Bank statistics um, on this, and I found some numbers from 2005. They're, they're a little bit dated, but they're fairly current. And, and do you know that as of 2005, half of the world's people live on $2.50 a day or less? Half of the world's people. And, and that's a figure that's been corrected for exchange rates. So it, it represents people like us trying to live on $2.50 a day shopping at the local grocery store. Half of the world's people. And guess how much of the world's population live on $10 a day or less? 80%. 80%, 8 out of 10 people in the world live on $70 a week or less. And so, of course, those of us who are middle class are only middle class by American standards. By world standards, we're fabulously wealthy. And John the Baptist reminds people like us that there are many who not only don't have a shirt to spare, they don't even have one shirt. And who not only don't have food to spare, but don't even have enough to feed their families. And to repent, John the Baptist says, as he gets practical, to turn our lives around, to, to view things the right sort of way, begins with our wallet with our pantry, 
with our clothes closet. It begins with sharing with those in need. Because remember what we've learned so far in Luke. This king that that we're preparing the way for, this this Jesus who is coming to save us, who's who's coming is coming to invite us into a new kingdom that Jesus is going to set up. And, and this is a kingdom which I've been describing in past weeks with words like surprising and upside down and mixed up. Remember, this is a kingdom which is first announced to low-class shepherds. It's led by a king who's born in a manger to, to a young, overlooked woman who's, who has no social status, no wealth, no religious credentials. This is a kingdom, in the words of Mary, in which God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. That's why we're going to see a, a little bit later in Luke 4, when Jesus announces his, his mission at, at a synagogue in Nazareth, and he quotes from the book of Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then in Luke 18, Jesus will tell a rich young ruler that if he wants to have eternal life in this kingdom Jesus has come to bring, this rich ruler should sell all that he has and give it to the poor. Now my wife warned me a few weeks ago that my recent sermons were starting to sound like liberation theology. If you're not familiar with liberation theology, it, it says that God's main concern is to help the poor rise up and overthrow their rich oppressors. And, and you know what I told Anne when she said that to me? I, I said, good, then the message of Luke is getting through. <laughs> now, listen carefully. I, I'm not saying that Luke is teaching liberation theology. You hear that? <laughs> and I don't believe in liberation theology either. But what I am saying is that when you're poor and you're powerless, when you can't afford enough food to feed your children, and when your clothes are falling apart and you have no money to buy new ones, then it's just common sense that when your Savior comes for you to set up a better kingdom, that kingdom will be a place where you aren't hungry anymore and where you have enough. And where people's economic situations are, are far more fair and equitable than they were at the time of John the Baptist and seemingly as they have been ever since. And that's clear to Mary, if you read her song. And it's clear here to John the Baptist. And as we'll see in the book of Luke, it's clear to Jesus. In, in fact, it's clear to Christians all over the world. The only ones it's not so clear to is those of us who have so much and don't feel we want to share it because we've earned it and it belongs to us because that's what the world around us has told us. And to people like us, middle-class people, John the Baptist says, do you want to be prepared for the coming king? Well, time for a paradigm shift. Time for repentance. Share what you have with those in need. Because that's the kind of kingdom Jesus has come to bring. As Jesus will put it later in Luke 6, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And woe to you who are rich, 
for you have already received your comfort. Because in God's kingdom that Jesus is coming to bring, everyone has enough. And nobody has so much that they don't need to trust God like many of us today choose not to trust God by trusting in our wealth that we're building up. Then John goes on and addresses how this salvation is going to affect our work as well. Luke points out that even tax collectors and and soldiers are coming to John and they're asking what they should do to repent. Tax collectors and soldiers. These two groups are the poster children. They're the front lines of Roman oppression. Tax collectors enforced the heavy taxation burden that the Romans placed on their conquered peoples like the Jews. And not only did the tax collectors collect these heavy taxes that Rome demanded, but they were notorious for collecting extra, for for bilking the people in order to line their own pockets. And and then soldiers, they enforced Roman authority, and, and yet they were not well paid. And so it was always tempting for soldiers to use the power that they had to make a little extra for their own families by shaking down the locals by taking bribes, by blackmailing people. And so not surprisingly, John tells them that they must stop these practices. They must be content with their lawful pay. But what is surprising is that John doesn't go any further than that, that John doesn't tell the tax collectors and soldiers to quit being tax collectors and soldiers and and to find more reputable, more wholesome lines of work. Rather, John leaves them to work out their repentance in their current occupations. You see, John isn't preaching liberation theology. He's not calling for a radical overthrow of the political system by force. But rather, John is calling everyone who would prepare the way to receive the coming Savior and King to begin seeing things, to begin living in a new way, even and especially at work. And as it turns out, this new way will actually, over time, undermine the oppressive system and make its oppressiveness untenable. Because a new king is coming to set up a new kingdom, which will subvert and which will overthrow all of the other worldly kingdoms. And if we want to be a part of 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 this salvation, then we need to begin seeing things. We need to begin living in a new way by a new economics and a new politics. Well, there's a lot more about this king and about the salvation that he'll bring. There's much more to say and there's much more to discover in the weeks ahead as we continue working through Luke's gospel. But right up front, as, Luke, as John the Baptist paves the way, he wants us to get one thing clear. And that is that salvation begins with our job and with our wallet. If we can have a change of perspective there, a new way of living there, then we'll be well on our way to being prepared to receive the king who comes to save us. Because as Jesus later says in Luke 12, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be. If you can be open-handed and generous with with your finances, then you can be open-handed and generous with your heart. If you can trust God for your daily bread, 
then you can trust God to forgive your sins. And that's what God wants. God wants to forgive all of our sins and to welcome us into this wonderful new kingdom that he sent his son to bring. Well, in conclusion, John has really shaken us up. Aren't you glad that we don't have to get our hearts and our lives all sorted out by ourselves? In verse 16, John gives us the good news that the one who is coming is going to do something wonderful for us to help us. He's going to baptize us with his Holy Spirit. A spirit which will give us new hearts, hearts fit and willing to live in this new way of life called the kingdom of God, which Jesus came to lead us into. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for introducing us to John the Baptist. Your word, your word hurts. And yet it's that good kind of hurt, like when your back is sore and someone massages it. And it hurts, but it's a good heart hurt. Because we know in our hearts that your heart is about generosity. That we know that in heaven, no one's going to go hungry. Everyone's going to have enough. And we know you've invited us into a kingdom which is a taste of heaven now. It's heaven come to earth, and you're teaching us to live in it. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us this heart, that we would be generous, open-handed people who would genuinely care about others. And thank you above all, that you want to forgive our sins. We have failed. We have been stingy. We have been selfish. We have compromised. Thank you that as you turn us around and you point us towards your kingdom, you're willing to forgive all that and give us a new beginning by your grace.